Apparently, Aaron Spelling's exasperated pitch to ABC for Fantasy Island, after several other series proposals being rejected, was what do you want? An island that people can go to and all of their sexual fantasies will, fantasies will be realised? Which I'm assuming was also the pitch that those behind all those crazed conspiracy fantasies that currently pass for political discourse amongst the US right wing made to the trackpots for the ultimate, ultimate, utterly ridiculous masturbatory fantasy. And so Epstein Island was born. That mystical place where plain loads of liberals and celebrities are flown in order that the mysterious billionaire Mr. Rourke, sorry Epstein, uh, can make their most perverted sexual fantasies come true. Perhaps Donald Trump was there acting as a psychic to two, shouting, It's the plane, boss, the plane, before waddling over to Epstein to greet the, that week's tranche of guests. Because, of course, that's the only rational explanation as to how Trump's name appears on passenger lists for Epstein's private jet. He was merely an employee following orders. Yes, indeed, with that Epstein list, actually simply a list of everyone mentioned in a court case related to Epstein, with no indication that any of them are actually guilty, let alone accused of any wrongdoing, which the right-wingers have been basically wanking themselves silly over ever since it was released the other week, we know that they were all there partaking in underage orgies, even Stephen Hawking. Now, to most rational human beings, the inclusion of his name on this so-called list is confirmation that the majority of the great and the good who were wooed by Epstein were there to boost his ego by association and to help him try to spread his influence by offering to assist them with various charitable scientific humanitarian projects or whatever. I mean, what the hell do you think Hawking would, would have been able to actually do in terms of sexual depravity? Such a question doesn't deter the demented, of course, who all started screaming that he could have been a voyeur, getting us kicks from simply watching kiddies being sexually abused. Obviously, bearing in mind that in Fantasy Island, Mr. Rourke was apparently able to perform supernatural miracles in order uh, to allow his guests to fulfil their fantasies, even temporarily giving them superhuman powers in some cases, maybe Epstein was similarly able to temporarily restore Hawking to full health. Or perhaps he was able to temporarily transfer his mind to the body of some strapping male porn star. Then again, perhaps he was simply able to create a sex machine which would do the deed while transmitting all the sensations directly into Hawking's mind. If, his success, if it was successful, Hawking would doubtless have been doing donuts in his electric wheelchair while his electronic voice box blared like a ship's horn. Or then again, maybe it was simpler than that and far more low-tech. Maybe he managed to hire some of those puppeteers who used to uh, create the Thunderbirds TV series and got them basically to attach strings to Hawking's body and manipulate them like, like a marionette from above into being able to carry out sexual activity. Who knows? Anyway. In reality, he's most likely simply the guest of a shady millionaire businessman trying to gain influence. As indeed with the majority of other people being linked with Epstein. Not that I'm denying that Epstein was involved in criminal activity, including possibly procuring girls, possibly underage, for some rich clients. But in reality, the likes of Epstein often spend a lot of time making it sure they're seen to be associated with all manner of powerful people. Basically, uh, in the belief that it gives them some kind of security 
if the proverbial ever hits the fan about their activities because they can start pointing the finger and implicating everybody else and the hope that these people fearing that will happen will extend some kind of protection to them. Well, that's what Epstein hoped, but the real world, more often than not, doesn't work that smoothly. But hey, no matter how crazed all the Epstein Island bunk might sound to the rational, it's got the right-wing freaks foaming at the mouth. They love it because it all seems to play into their own fantasies that anyone who doesn't stand somewhere to the right of Adolf Hitler is a depraved murderer and paedophile. It gives them license, they think, to spin all kinds of wild allegations about public figures they don't like on the basis of no evidence whatsoever. What fascinates me is just how depraved and warped some of the activities they ascribe to others actually are. What kind of mind can come up with such fantasies? Isn't this whole Epstein affair some kind of mass projection of the extreme right's own darkest and most repressed fantasies onto their enemies? Are they just disappointed that they weren't the ones allegedly being invited to Epstein's version of Fantasy Island? Person to person to Captain Seda, please. Headquarters to 619. Captain Seda, come in. Seda here, I'm busy. Let's meet you at the hospital. I think you'd better come here. She went from man to man, from bed to bed. She wanted everything from life. You were having a thing with my kid sister. That's ridiculous. Now, we know all about Louise's death, don't we? No. When you heard she was ill, you got the bright idea to, to end your problem permanently. Who's there? Suppose Louise and Carrie were killed because of the necklace. Is this what you're seeking? Yes. How can my sister ever get involved with someone like your brother? Someone like my brother? You're always passing judgments, aren't you, Captain? stop seeing each other. Did she start dating anyone else? No. Not that I know of. Tony, it's your sister's autopsy report. She was poisoned. 
those films I caught back in the days when ITV used to show exploitation films in the late night slot, usually on a Thursday or Friday. I finally caught up with 1976's Blazing Magnum, also released in English as Strange Shadows in an Empty Room, again recently courtesy of a DVD copy I'd been given. When I first saw it, I wasn't aware that it was actually an Italian-made film. It had recognisable US actors in the lead roles and was clearly shot in Canada. I just assumed it was a Canadian Dirty Harry knockoff, something backed up by its UK release title. But were the heroes indeed a tough city police detective and does indeed wield a magnum revolver, the film itself refuses to fit neatly into a single genre. The alternative English language title hints at it being a giallo movie, and it does contain some touches that might have come from such a film. The stalking of the blind woman springs to mind here. It also has sequences that might have come from a tough cop thriller. The opening, for instance, with the hero foiling a bank robbery, and a lengthy and extremely well-staged car chase around Ottawa. Ultimately, though, all of these elements are merely trimmings to the main plot, which is, in effect, a whodunit mystery, as the hero tries to find out who poisoned his younger sister. Not that it is a genteel Agatha Christie-type whodunit, of course, as solving the case involves the main cop trawling through the city's sex shops in gay and transvestite scene which embrills them in a memorable fight, but fight scene with a bunch of transvestites. The collision of these elements from different genres does give the film a somewhat uneven feel, although arguably this, along with a main plot that constantly twists one way than another, contributes to giving Blazing Magnum an enjoyably off-kilter sense of unpredictability. Things frequently don't wind up in line with genre expectations. The car chase, for instance, doesn't end with the cop beating up or shooting the suspect or with the latter dying in an exploding car, but instead with the main cop simply asking the suspect the questions he'd intended to before the latter fled, before then, and then he simply walks away. Likewise, the fight with the transvestites is the result of a misunderstanding and the suspicion of the police. Again, it culminates with the cop finally sitting down and talking with one of them to get his answers. Most surprisingly of all, the fight doesn't end with some grossly homophobic, homophobic comments on the cop's part, as you might expect in, you know, say, a genuine Dirty Harry movie. But frustrating audience expectations seems to be one of the film's main intents, not in a negative way, but instead to keep them guessing as to the outcome, not just of individual sequences, but the plot as a whole which in turn mirrors the experience of the main character, as all of his assumptions about his sister's life unravel in the course of his investigation. Directed by Alberto Di Martino, a specialist in knockoffs of popular Hollywood hits, whose output included my favourite Italian Bond knockoff, O.K. Connery from 1967, and uh, Exorcist knockoff The Antichrist from 1974, and, well, general superheroes... Uh, knockoff 1980s The Puma Man. As I say, his, his um, the film, as directed by him on a technical level, is very professional and it's very professionally put together with excellent action sequence and locations well employed. It also manages a good degree of suspense in the stalking sequence and features an effective dream like flashback sequence. Well, the dialogue is never going to win awards, an above-average cast for this sort of film does their best to breathe some life into it. Stuart Whitman, a perennial not-quite-first-rank star, 
makes for a surprisingly effective leading man, pulling off the tough cop business while still giving the character a more reasonable and sensitive side. Martin Landau is suitably shifty as the plot's main red herring, a doctor who's prime suspect for the sister's murder. While Gail Honeycutt and Teaser Farrow do the best they can in somewhat underwritten roles. Exploitation fixture John Saxon turns up as Whitman's partner and delivers his usual professionalism, perfectly pitching his performance at the right level for this kind of movie. There's no doubt that Blazing Magnum is a decidedly odd film. It's cross-genre nature, meaning that it's neither fish nor fowl, cop thriller nor giallo. But its hybrid nature results in a curiously enjoyable and memorable film. Well packaged and decently paced, it still makes for an entertaining watch. On your last trip, did you discover what the Earth people eat? They eat a great many of these. They fill them with their metal knives. Boil them for 20 of their minutes. Then they smash them all to bits. They are clearly a most primitive people. For mash, get smash. These days, lots of busy mums are noticing that their favourite mashed potato rattles. This is because it contains the real potato pieces that ensure a mashed potato that tastes absolutely perfect. Mm, that is good! And we think you'll find nothing else will seem quite the same again. For mash, get smash! After the day's labours, how nice to come home to the wife, a pair of slippers, and a plate of Cadbury Smash. Because it's made of real potato pieces, it ensures a mashed potato with a taste that's unbeatable. Mm, that is good. And then what better satisfied in front of your favourite comedy programme. And after peeling, boil for 20 minutes. For <laughs> Mash, get Smash. To make sure your evening goes with a swing, you'll need Cadbury Smash and one of these. With Smash, you can conjure up a variety of dishes and still leave time to add the finishing touches to your outfit. What do you think? Smash, get Smash! Apparently, we're retaliating against the Houthis. I mean, they sound like they might be some alien tribe. Space nomads who've been raiding the Earth abducting our women and molesting our cattle. It's great that the West is finding ever more exotic enemies to fight with, rather than those boring and commonplace Iraqis, Russians, Libyans, Chinese, whatever. The Houthis definitely sound as if they might have four arms and green skin, and possibly ride around on strange alien beasts with six legs and big teeth. Frankly, if they really have been going around disintegrating innocent Earth people or stealing their brains or whatever else it is these aliens do, then they fully deserve to have the might of Earth's military ranged against them. It's all very well, all those middle-class virtue signalers going on about how we should stop the war and not kill alien larvae on, on social media as they do, but they aren't the ones who have to suffer the alien attacks. <clears throat> Believe me, if they were the ones getting buggered by four-armed aliens with barbed penises, they'd be singing a different tune. But no. Despite the aliens being the ones committing atrocities, these peaceniks are all waving their arms around and wailing about how we should just let the aliens invade 
and then resist them peacefully. Yeah, keep resisting as they inject their eggs into our still living bodies and use us as incubators. They're growing offspring, slowly eating us alive from the inside out. Still, while I might not be entirely clear as to who or what the Houthis are, exactly, you can guarantee that there are a horde of people out there on social media willing to educate me on the subject. Not that they'd ever heard of the Houthis before, uh, before the other week themselves, but in spite of this, they are now experts on the subject and prepared to share their wisdom with the world. Just like they did when they were instant experts on COVID, US elections, the war in Ukraine, the Gaza crisis, you know, you name it. That wisdom, inevitably, will be that the Western nations are all bastard oppressors, that the Houthis are entirely innocent, and it's all Israel's fault somehow, and that if you support or at the very least don't denounce unreservedly the current action against the Houthis, then you're a fascist. Personally, I don't feel it necessary to have an opinion on every ongoing conflict currently going on in the world. I just don't have enough facts about most of them to form an opinion. But with regard to this business of the Houthis, I'm, 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 you know, I'm going to give my expertise. I would point out here that whatever the grievances with the government of Yemen, see, I have been paying attention to the news really, I'm not entirely sure how harassing and hijacking international shipping is advancing their cause in this regard. I'd also point out that surely the innocent civilian seamen crewing the merchant ships under threat have the right to expect some kind of protection from the nations under which their flags are registered and or owned. Just a thought. Okay, I know. I'm a fascist.
I've mentioned many times before, I have a weakness for films featuring dinosaurs. I have a particular weakness for those in which the dinosaurs are created with stop-motion animation. If they're featured living in some kind of lost world, even better. 1969's The Valley of Guanji ticks all of these boxes. Plus, the dinosaurs are animated by Ray Harryhausen himself. The film had its origins with an unrealised Willis O'Brien project, Valley of the Mists, which he had tried to get into production several times in the 40s and 50s with no success. The unique selling point of the project was that it combined cowboys with dinosaurs, something that the Valley of the Guanji delivers on, providing audiences with striking scenes of mounted cowboys lassoing dinosaurs. Its tale of cowboys going south to an isolated forbidden valley in Mexico, where it seems various prehistoric animals have survived the extinction of their peers with the aim of capturing one alive for exhibition in the US, is generally well realised. There are plenty of dinosaurs on display and lots of interaction between them and the actors in a series of decently staged action sequences. It all builds up to a stirring climax in a border town with the title dinosaur, Guanji, which appears to be a hybrid between a Tyrannosaur and an Allosaur, gets loose and goes on a rampage, winding up in a local cathedral. Well, the film boasts both plenty of action and plenty of dinosaurs, which I recall enjoying a great deal when I first saw it as a kid in the 70s. A recent viewing of it left me feeling slightly disappointed. The film's main problem is that it doesn't bring much that is new to the genre, its main contributions being the cowboys and the period setting. No matter how well staged all of its set pieces are, they have an air of over-familiarity about them. Aside from the dinosaur roping, they all seem to be derived from sequences in earlier Willis O'Brien or Ray Harryhausen movies. Although in truth, even the lassoing scene has a precedent in O'Brien's uh, Mighty Joe Young from 1949, where the title ape gets similar treatment, as I recall. I mean, the whole Forbidden Valley setup is straight from The Lost World. The use of the title monster as a sideshow attraction is from um, the 1933 King Kong. Even Guanji's unveiling is reminiscent of Kong's unveiling in New York in that film. The pterodactyl carrying off a woman is from 1 million B years BC from 1966, where the dinosaur elephant fight late on in the movie is essentially a rerun of the fight between the Ymir and an elephant in 1957's 20 million miles to Earth. Well, derivative in content terms, the Valley of Guanji is at least decently made with some nicely shot Spanish locations standing in for Mexico, although overall it lacks the dynamism of earlier films featuring Harryhausen's work. This might well be down to the choice of Jim O'Connolly Jim as director, who's better known for working on the somewhat lower-key Edgar Wallace series of crime thrillers for Merton Park. Perhaps the producers have been influenced by his more recent work on the more flamboyant Joan Crawford starring horror film uh, 1967's Berserk. But he clearly had little affinity for the material in the Valley of Guanji, with his direction sometimes feeling lacklustre and even disinterested. A good cast, led by James Franciscus and including genre veteran Richard Carlson, helped carry the action along, with Lawrence Naismith particularly memorable is the paleontologist is made by the crass commercial exploitation of the dinosaur. As this is another of those films in which people discover a lost world and proceed to kill just about every prehistoric survival they encounter, though, the professor could at least rest assured that once Guanji was killed, there weren't, weren't any more 
dinosaurs left to be exploited. Released without much publicity, the film was something of a box office disappointment, but later became a TV favourite during the 1970s. As a side note, some of the dinosaur footage from the film turned up in an episode of Fantasy Island in the, in the 1980s. Mr. Rourke was apparently able to create a whole lost world, including dinosaurs, in order to facilitate a couple of guests' fantasies. One of those guests being um, Bob Denver from uh, Gilligan's Island. But there you go. Fun fact there, folks. Because Nurofen travels to the site of pain, it works where it's needed. Which is why Nurofen delivers fast, effective relief that lets you get on with your life. Nurofen targets pain. The mail could be giving you £25,000 a year. And a bonus of £100,000 tax-free. Start tomorrow in the Daily Mail. This Father's Day, imagine how thrilled Dad will be to wake up to Mac 3 from Gillette. Give him the best. The first triple blade razor from Gillette for a shave he'll never forget. Mac 3 from Gillette. Have I told you about my tasty extras? You can get three of my spicy hot wings for an extra tasty 99p. Nobody does chicken like KFC. Whatever you want. Right to sale. Right to summer. Right to shopping. Well, it appears I was wrong about the Houthis. They aren't, as I assumed, a bunch of alien brigands menacing mankind and whose occupation of part of Yemen has resulted in military strikes by the Earth's combined military forces. I was alerted to my error when I saw the term Hamas and the Houthis trending on Twitter. Yeah, I know Twitter, but I still can't quite hit, kick the habit. Anyway, when I saw that trending there, it became clear to me that they were actually a musical act of some kind, supporting the well-known Middle Eastern singer Hamas. I should imagine that they end their performances by blowing up the venue and slaughtering their audience, especially if they're performing in Jerusalem. I know, I'm a fascist, again. The sad thing is that there probably are people out there who actually believe this sort of thing. Such are the levels of sheer ignorance on display in social media. As ever, of course, one should always add the proviso that those who use social media are a relatively small proportion of the total global population and their views aren't necessarily representative of the wider population and moreover those who are most vociferous on social media are themselves only a small proportion of social media users in total and don't necessarily represent the views of the majority. Anyway, just look at this latest Twitter nonsense about disease X. A bunch of idiots have completely and deliberately misconstrued reports about preparations being made in light of experiences of the COVID pandemic to be able to more rapidly de develop new vaccines to combat any future unknown viruses, i.e. a disease X, to instead try and spread information, dis misinformation and panic about government conspiracies to unleash new diseases on the world, because obviously that's the way to control us all even more.
Then we have that hairy lewd Neil Oliver spouting shit about turbo cancer, a non-existent condition that only affects those who've been vaccinated. Now, I have to say here that if not being vaccinated turns you into a raving idiot who looks as if they've been living in a cave for the past four years like Neil Oliver, then I'll take every shot on offer. Of course, nothing can beat the absolute toss that some of those QAnon stroke MAGA freaks out in the States sign up to. One of my favourites being that a pizza parlour was somehow a front for a satanic pedophile network, providing underage sex slaves to the entire, democratic obviously, Washington establishment. All on the basis of no evidence whatsoever. It, fa it fascinates me how some people can buy into such obvious nonsense. But then again, in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary, they still believe that Trump is a patriotic, clean-living, honest-as-the-day-is-long American, not a lying, traitorous, scumbag fraudster who molests women. But getting back to that pizza business, I'm left wondering if they would believe conspiracies centred on other fast food franchises. Could they be convinced, for instance, that McDonald's are practising human sacrifice and using human flesh in their burgers? At the start of every working day, each branch's high priest dressed as Ronald McDonald slaughters a child to ensure a good day's training? A good day's trading, rather? Could it be that McDonald's are behind illegal immigrants flooding across the border from Mexico, sourcing the meat for its, for, for its products from them? Then there's Burger King. Do they practice occult rituals designed to summon up Cthulhu with the old ones? Are their burgers being prepared by things with tentacles? Sure, I know. It's all a bit tame compared to the fantasies about paedophilia and pizza. But you never know. These fruitcakes are scarily gullible. Anthony Perkins. What if I followed my every instinct completely? And Anthony Perkins. He ripped from down there and opened her up to here. A man and a madman taking their pleasure on the cutting edge of terror. <laughs> edge of sanity. You don't seem like such a bad fella to me. Twice the fear, twice the fun. <laughs> Twins of terror are better than one because I'm bad. Mother's gone away. Lucky day. <laughs> Brother's here to stay. You didn't think I was. Dad, did you? Edge of sanity. It's a ripping good time. Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde has to be one of the most filmed horror stories in the history of cinema, rivaling Bram Stoker's Dracula for the number of versions made. Consequently, the story had become over-familiar, with filmmakers increasingly desperate to come up with variations on the novella's main theme. Indeed, it was over-familiar by the time that Hammer had their first stab at the story with 1960's The Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll, which gives us a taciturn, reclusive Jekyll who turns, into, turns not into a monster, but a handsome, albeit cruel, playboy. Hammer followed it up in 1971 with another variation, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, which introduced a gender twist into the transformation. 
Other variations have included a black exploitation version in 1976, Dr. Black, Mr. Hyde, and Paul Nash's 1971 effort, Dr. Jekyll and the Werewolf, which sees the good doctor's grandson using his serum to transform Nashi not only into his usual werewolf alter ego, but also a Hyde-like sadist. Which might make you think that by the late 80s, the trip was completely played out. What other variations could filmmakers come up with? In order, to, you know, in order to make any new adaptations distinctive and original. Well, veteran Schlockmeister Harry Allen Tower's solution was to pretty much abandon the original novella, save for the central concept and main characters, fashioning a new plot which sees Hyde become Jack the Ripper in a Victorian slasher movie. Just to ensure, ensure that this would be a different retelling of the story, Gerard Kikoyne, an admirer of Jesus Franco, and director of Erotica, took the director's chair. The result was 1989's Edge of Sanity. As a satisfactory reimagining of Jekyll and Hyde, Edge of Sanity falls well short, but nonetheless has many merits in its own right. What is immediately striking about the film is its look and style. Despite being set in what appears to be Victorian London, although in reality it was mainly shot in Hungary, and anachronisms in both costumes and props abound in the film. Its look has as much in common with 80s pop videos, lots of backlighting, strange camera angles, smooth tracking shots, and close-ups of the main characters' faces. The sets, particularly Jekyll's lab, frequently have an impressionistic feel to them, the decor employing a limited palette of, of contrasting colours. The overall result of director Kirkoyne's efforts is quite striking and gives the film a frantic and off-kilter feel. The use of such a contemporary style helps emphasise the fact that, to those living then, the Victorian era was perceived of as a time of modernity and scientific and technical progress. And the modernistic theme is carried over into the action of the film, with Jekyll administering a serum not through a syringe or by quaffing it from a foaming beaker, but instead by smoking it in something that looks like a crack pipe. The drug-like nature of his substance is made clear as Jekyll's transformations into Hyde seem increasingly motivated by his need for another hit of the drug and the subsequent high it gives him in the form of Hyde's increasingly depraved experiences. Moreover, later on in the film, as Hyde, he starts addicting others to the substance via that crack pipe. Inevitably, bearing in mind the film's provenance, Hyde's particular sexual proclivities are driven by Jekyll's own deeply repressed sexual hang-ups, which we see in an opening prologue born from a childhood incident which inextricably linked, in his mind, the sex, violent punishment, humiliation and voyeurism. Crucially, the film departs from both the source novella and most other film versions, which, uh, which present Hyde as being an expression of a primitive part of the personality so deeply sublimated that it never emerges consciously. In Edge of Sanity, however, Hyde represents a part of the personality that is inextricably linked with the conscious mind, that is ever-present, lurking only just below the surface, needing only the slightest catalyst to trigger it into being. This is made explicit near the film's climax, when Jekyll looks into a mirror and hallucinates the highlights of Hyde's depravities up to then, but with Jekyll in place of Hyde, making clear that, in reality, there is no Hyde as a separate entity. It is all Jekyll.
There is no other as Hyde is usually presented in these things. Instead, he's merely a persona through which Jekyll can enact his barely repressed fantasies of sex and violence. Which, of course, puts a whole new light on the apparently saintly Dr. Jekyll's work with the poor, most specifically with fallen women. He might rationalise his motivation as being purely altruistic, but in truth, it's much darker. Overall, Edge of Sanity lives up to its title as the film comes over as utterly bonkers, thanks in no small part to Anthony Perkins' performance as Jekyll and Hyde. While he brings his trademark twitchiness and sense of awkwardness to Jekyll, his Hyde is completely insane, a leering, wild-eyed and pasty-faced sexual sadist, hell-bent on taking the rest of the world with him on his demented ride. He achieves the latter by forcing those who don't participate directly to watch in an act of voyeurism, thereby making them complicit in his depravities. After all, according to the film's own rationale, he's only acting in acting what they themselves really desire but won't consciously admit to wanting. Coming late in his career, and he'd be dead within a couple of years, Perkins embraces his dual role with relish, cutting, slashing and raping his way through Victorian London. The rest of the cast echo the theme of duality, with the actors playing the denizens of respectable society, giving relatively restrained performances, while those playing characters operating on the dark side, madams, prostitutes, gigolos, etc., giving suitably outlandish playings of their characters. Edge of Sanity has endured a somewhat poor reputation, more often than not uh, dismissed as a cheap and tasteless, explo as cheap and tasteless exploitation. More recent years, however, have seen it reappraised in some quarters. Indeed, seen today, its good points are easier to see. The production design, lighting, stylish direction and enjoyably over-the-top performances give it the air of a far more expensive and classy production. Its lapses, such as the evisceration of the source novella, are easier to forgive as, in retrospect, some of what it comes up with to replace this material is interesting and surprisingly thoughtful. Of course, its main innovation, the conflation of Hyde with Jack the Ripper, isn't really that original. Hammer's Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde pulled the same trick. Although, not, although of course, neither film's versions of the Ripper's murders bear any resemblance to the, to the events of the actual Whitechapel murders. Despite the art house look and, psycholo and its psychological, psychological trappings of its script, Edge of Sanity never loses sight of the fact that it is an exploitation film, providing the viewer with gallons of gore, acres of bare female flesh, and plenty of perversity. What it lacks, though, is much in the way of suspense, tension, or even simply pure shock sequences. Its pace is too languid, matching its look, for it to work satisfactorily as a thriller. That said, it's still a lot of, lot of fun. For Perkins' performance, if nothing else, coming over like the and the whole film comes over like the bastard child of Ken Russell, prostitutes dressed as nuns, is a recurring motif, and Jesus Franco. Age of Sanity might not be a, a particularly satisfactory as either an adapt, adaptation of Jekyll and Hyde or as a Jack the Ripper thriller, but it remains a fascinating oddity that can be surprisingly, surprisingly rewarding to watch. A man brings black magic to a woman. Black magic. 
Why does a man bring black magic, plain chocolates, to a woman? The man in my life brings me black magic because I'm me. of experts remember that michael gove sound bike from sound bike from back in the days of the brexit referendum well i've decided that i've had enough of experts too not the sort of experts that gove was annoyed with basically any economist politician or academic that warned of the damage brexit would do to the uk economy and have been proven right incidentally which i guess is why they are experts because you know they know these things but no instead i'm fed up with those experts who seem to have proliferated since Brexit. You know, the ones I mean, the ones who seem to spend all their time on social media regaling us with their expertise on, well, everything. Remember when, during the pandemic, they're experts on immunology and viruses before rapidly turning it, turning their talents to conflict analysis when Russia invaded Ukraine, then did the same for the Israel-Gaza crisis before turning their attentions to Yemen and the Houthi rebels? Of course you do. If you have a social media account, then you'll have endured them too. It's not just social media though. YouTube these days is just full of videos about the war on Ukraine, the Houthis, Gaza, vaccines, Brexit, electric vehicles, climate change, just about any issue really, all put out by people presenting themselves as experts. Now some of those behind these quasi news channels claim dubious justifications for their expertise. They are minor league academics, ex-military, etc. Or so they claim. But hey, I have a master's in international studies and, a long time ago, once worked for the Ministry of Defence as an intelligence analyst, which I think trumps any of these self-styled experts' qualifications. I don't, however, feel the need to set myself up as an online expert. For one thing, I'm well aware that my expertise on international affairs is pretty much historical, and these days I have no more insight into current issues than anybody else who watches the news and reads the papers. They're worse than the barroom bores they so closely resemble, except that, unlike them, the online experts can't be escaped simply by going home or even just moving to another bar. They feel like they're everywhere, their opinions assaulting you as soon as you open up an internet browser. Increasingly, increasingly they like to style themselves citizen journalists or 
content creators, despite the fact they adhere to no known journalistic standards and their content is frequently entirely derivative and lacking any kind of substance, consisting mainly simply of opinion or misinformation. Obviously, their aims are twofold, to push their, to push their dubious personal agendas well, hopefully making money from their content. I was cheered to learn that the Twitter-based ones at least don't seem to be achieving the latter. In the wake of some YouTube personality claiming that they had made huge amounts of money from posting a video on Twitter, all manner of those right-wing Trump-supporting Nazi-enabling content creators and citizen journalists were calling foul, claiming that it couldn't be true as they never made anything from their shit. Possibly because they don't produce anything that anyone would want to pay to see or in their warped minds because the liberal establishment are somehow suppressing their work. Because, you know, Elon Musk, you know, he's apparently some kind of closet liberal just masquerading as a right-wing asshole. I have to say my reaction to their gripes, as it is to just about everyone who thinks they can make a, a living out of posting stuff online, regardless of their political affiliations, is to shout, just get a fucking proper job at my screen. If I had a pound for every time I've seen some content creator put out a plea for their followers to help them out financially because they don't actually have a job, instead relying upon ad revenue, Patreon or just straightforward donations, then I'd be making a whip mint out of the web. But to get back to my main point, these self-styled experts are of course experts in nothing but self-publicity and spinning bullshit because they are of course the main purveyors of the idiotic conspiracy fantasies that so blight modern discourse. Yeah, you see, you knew it from the outset, didn't you? This is really about my favourite hobby horse, the evils of conspiracy bollocks. Anyway, as these people lack any real knowledge of any of the subjects they like to claim expertise on, they just recycle the same old, old ignorant and ill-informed bullshit in pursuit of their own particular agendas. Who needs facts when you can spout opinions and hearsay instead? trying to give it authority and gravitas by spuriously claiming to be an expert. So yeah, I've had enough of experts. Most specifically, I've had enough of the inexpert type of experts who just spout partisan bollocks, hiding behind their misrepresentations of free speech in order to justify their spreading of lies. Let's get back to the days when to be an expert, you actually had to know something about your given field. Everyone's a fruit and a nutcase. It keeps you going when you toss the cane up. Whatever you are doing, punting, canoeing, is nutritious and pretitious to judiciously be chewing. Everyone's a fruit and a nutcase. If only it could help improve my singing! For healthy recreation, what a combination. Cannabis, fruit and nut. We make these up as we go along, you know.